The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to open up to Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 36. And if you remember, Cliff last week was preaching in verses 14 through 28, I have a little more modest section in terms of size, but I want us to see that this is actually one event. If you're using an ESV this morning, or if you're using a Christian Standard Bible, this ESV, you might notice that they are dividing these, this section up into two distinct paragraphs with two subheadings. It might be called the sign of Jonah, and the next one, verses 33 through 36, is the light in you. That might be the subheading, at least it is in the ESV. In the New American Standard, they don't divide it up with subheadings. It's all under, verses 29 through 36, it's all under the heading, the sign of Jonah. And we have to keep in mind that in the original text, these subheadings were not there. And so, in the case, it's fine. Those subheadings, I think they help us follow along and see where we're at in our Bibles. I appreciate the subheadings in our uh, English translations of the Bible. and It's entirely legitimate. It's fine. But we have to be careful that they don't allow us or cause us to divide up artificially passages that are meant to be read together. And this is a passage that's meant to be read together. In fact, it's one entire event starting in verse 14. And when Jesus starts into what he's talking about, verse 29, he's going to go all the way through 36. It's one piece. There's one theme that's going through this, these verses, verses 29 through 36. I'll mention that theme in a moment. And today, in God's providence, it just so happens that I get to preach on Jonah again. And if you're here a couple weeks ago for Easter... I was preaching on Jonah then, too, and I, I didn't plan it this way. I actually forgot that I was preaching on this passage when I prepared for Easter. But uh, we, we looked at this in Easter. We looked at another passage in Matthew that talked about Jonah, and we're gonna, that was in Matthew 12, 38 through 42, and we're going to look back at that passage. It's going to actually help us un- better understand this passage here today. But if you recall that that's what was happening a couple weeks ago, and we're going to talk about Jonah again. We're going to say some things that we said last time, because I think there are things that that bear repeating, but they're things that will sound familiar. But like I said, verses 29 through 32 need to be vitally connected with verses 33 through 36, because here's the theme. The theme is seeing. That's why the title, if you have a bulletin, if you're looking in our app and you're reading the bulletin there, the the title of today's message is, Can You See Him? The theme that will help you put together verses 29 through 36, or the main idea is sight, seeing, what you see and what you cannot see, what you want to see and why you don't see what you're supposed to see. So in the first part of verse 29, I want us to start with seeing what Jesus tells us about this crowd. He tells us what they want to see. This is the first part of verse 29. Luke tells us that the crowds were increasing. And like I said, I believe this is one event starting in verses 14 going down through verse 36 until Jesus is asked to go have a meal with the Pharisees and the lawyers. And so the crowd's increasing, meaning Jesus had just said a word about In verse 28, saying, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He had just said that into response to a a lady who had said, blessed be your mom. She's the blessed one. And he's like, no, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keep it. And in the midst of that, the crowd is now gathering to Jesus. It's uh, It's increasing. But Luke means something specific by saying the crowds were increasing. No throwaway words in the Bible. And this is not a throwaway phrase. Jesus, when he says... What he says next, we can rightly assume, is in response to this increasing crowd. The people gathering around Jesus have skewed motives, and as we'll see, a serious case of spiritual blindness. They don't see what they should see. So Jesus pulls no punches, okay? Jesus doesn't pull punches. He's not mean. He just always speaks the truth, which is actually the most loving thing that you can do. And he says this, this generation is an evil generation. Now, that's not a way to win friends and influence people. It's not a way to enlarge the crowd. In fact, the, the, as the, large, the, uh, the group is, is enlarging, he's, he's actually saying words that would cause them to leave. This 
generation is an evil generation. Now, telling a group of people, an entire generation, that they're evil would likely get you canceled in our culture. And it got Jesus canceled in his culture, didn't it? Ultimately. But not ultimately, right? Amen? Right. He was the victor. Nevertheless, it did get him crucified. It was the works of Jesus, but it was the words of Jesus that brought upon the people's wrath, particularly him telling them that they were evil and that they needed to repent and that they needed salvation. But he says, he gives the reason why they're evil. He doesn't just throw it out there. He says, he gives them a specific reason. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. We have to ask, what were they seeking and why was it evil? Because if you're... If you've been following along through Luke, Luke 2, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 12, is actually the first place that you'll find this word sign in the book of Luke. Luke uses it three times up to this point. The first time he uses this word sign is in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, when, it, when he says this. This is when the angels are uh, telling the shepherds how they'll be able to identify the baby Messiah. Quote, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So that's the first use of this word sign in Luke. And the second is in Luke 2.32, just shortly after that, when Simeon, after holding baby Jesus at only eight days old, says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." And then the third time is now here in verse, uh, in chapter 11, verse 14. Let's skip back over and back up a little bit to where Cliff is preaching last week. It says in verse 14, Now he was casting out a demon. Jesus is casting out a demon who was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. And some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. There's the third use up to this point. So interpreting now Jesus' words when he says, this is an evil generation and here's why, it seeks for a sign, we have to interpret that word sign here in the context of those three uses. God is not against signs that point to the identity of his son. That's not the issue. He's already used that kind of sign in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, as we just saw. And then he's actually going to say, there's coming a sign that will confirm my identity conclusively for everyone. And we'll see what that is in a moment. But so so God is not against signs here that point towards the identity of his son. The problem here in verse 16, when they were seeking a sign and then Jesus rebuking them for seeking a sign, was that the people were looking for signs on their own terms. They wanted to see a sensational sign that they would determine was proof enough for Jesus' identity. And most importantly, these so-called signs that they were seeking after were not rooted in the Messiah's identity as it was found in Scripture, as it was revealed in the Old Testament. An evil generation seeks a sign from Jesus on its own terms according to its own assessment of who is and who isn't the Messiah. And without much regard for Scripture, where God provides all the necessary knowledge you need to identify the Messiah. And I think we would be safe to say that this generation is also uh, seeking a sign that is done by Jesus, preferably a sign that would benefit their practical lives in some way, and they didn't want Jesus himself. And this theme is actually elaborated on by Jesus in John chapter 6. The people, by and large, wanted the power of Jesus, but they didn't want the person of Jesus, which is why they ultimately rejected him. They wanted the power of Jesus without the person of Jesus. So they want to see a sign. That's the first part of verse 29. They want to see a sign. And now Jesus is going to tell them in the latter part of verse 29 and through verse 30, Now he'll tell them what they will see. You want to see a sign? You're seeking it on your own terms. I'll tell you what you will see. 
He says in response to their unbelief that no sign will be given. And what he means that it would be no kind of sensational sign that they are, that they are wanting, that their own wisdom has devised. He's not going to give them that kind of sign. Nevertheless, there would be a sign. And Jesus says it will be the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah is the sign to that people in Nineveh centuries ago. Jesus will himself be the sign to this generation. And this is where we do need to go back to Matthew. And I think we get some helpful words from Jesus about what it means that he is going to be a sign to this generation and what it meant that Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh. So let's look over at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and following. Of course, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but again, it bears repeating and re-examination. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In this passage here, Jesus tells us how Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh and how it relates to Jesus himself. Jonah was a prophet who died in the depths of the sea and came back to life, so to speak. And we covered this a couple of weeks ago, but it's just, it, it's worth looking back at. So let us now turn to Jonah. If it doesn't take the rest of the sermon to find the book of Jonah, let's turn there now. Now we understand why some preachers have tabs in their Bible, out of fear that they won't be able to find where they're supposed to be going. Here's what ha- is happening in the book of Jonah. Jonah's commission to go preach to the the, the great, massive city of Nineveh. It's a Gentile city. It's a pagan city. And he doesn't want to do that because as we'll learn in a little bit, he was afraid that God would actually show this people mercy, these Gentiles mercy. So he finds a ship that's heading the opposite direction, 2,500 miles uh, west of where he was going, all the way over to Tarshish, across the Mediterranean Sea. And so God sends a storm. He's not going to be able to escape. God sends a storm to this ship that he has just boarded. And the ship's crew cast lots to find out who it is among them who is causing all these problems. Because they believe in a multitude of gods, and so now they're going to call upon their gods to help them discern who is it among us that's causing your wrath, O many gods that we are uh, trusting in. And so, of course, their gods are imaginary, but the true God reaches down, and he causes the lot to fall upon Jonah. So now the, the, the crew knows who is running and who's causing all this trouble. And any, the readers of the Bible should expect that God would do this kind of thing because Proverbs 16.33 says, the, lost is, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So in God's sovereignty, he reaches down among these pagan sailors and he causes the lot that they cast now to point over to Jonah to now expose and reveal him that he is the one who is causing all these problems. And so he finally fesses up and he says, it's me, I'm running from the Lord. So then he persuades them to throw him overboard. If you throw me overboard, the storm storm will stop. And so that's what the crew did. And this is interesting, and we didn't mention this a couple weeks ago, but in verse 14 it says, therefore they called out to the Lord. So we're starting to see some conversion happening here among these crewmen, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they're going to throw Jonah overboard and he will become the substitute for them. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I think they got converted. I think they came to trust in the one true God because of all of this. So even in Jonah's disobedience, we got God working salvation, which is pretty awesome. Meanwhile, Jonah's in the water, having a great time, and God appoints a great fish to swallow him up. And that's 
What happens, it says in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But he cries out to God, and in the prayer that he uses to cry out to God, he uses the very direct language of death and resurrection. Let's look at it specifically. He says this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's where you go when you die. In the Old Testament, you go to Sheol, that just means this is the place where you go when you die. And interestingly, he's saying that he's crying out from Sheol. Isn't that interesting? But this is, this is death language, and he says, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So there's hope here. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's death language. He can't get much more emphatic than saying that this is the place where the bars closed upon me forever. And then he goes on to say, yet you brought up my life from the pit. This is resurrection language. In Matthew 12, 38 through 40, Jesus explains that Jonah's apparent death and resurrection is meant to be a sign that points to the Messiah. Jesus is the prophet who will go into the depths of the earth and rise again from the dead as a substitute for his people. Jesus says that in Luke 11.30 that Jonah became a sign to Nineveh, to the, Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, which leads me to conclude that it's possible that these people actually heard about this so-called death and resurrection experienced by this Israelite prophet and that may have been one of the reasons why they all of a sudden repented because as Bob read, it says, Jonah just comes in and says, in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they're like, we got to get right with God. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. It's possible that they had heard that one of the Jewish prophets had died and been raised and now is preaching and that could have been an impetus to their repentance. So of course, we don't, we're not told explicitly, but it, it, is, it is possible. So that could be one of the reasons why Jesus says that he became a sign to the people, that Jonah became a sign to the people. How is that? Well, because he was dead and raised again and now preaching to them, and it brought about this great repentance. At the very least, Jesus means that the reader's able to go back and see that Jonah was made a sign to the people of Nineveh. Now Jesus is telling the crowd that the only sign that they will get from now on, turning back now to Luke, the only sign that they will get from now on is the sign of Jonah. Namely, his death and his resurrection. From this point on, Jesus will only complete three more miracles. In terms of density of miracles, this, is, this isn't much because he's done a lot up to this point, but now it's really tapering off. He will... Heal a woman with a disabling spirit. He will cleanse a group of ten lepers in one miracle. So that's the second one. And then the third one, he will heal a blind beggar. From this point onward, the rest of his work is now only preaching and teaching. No more miracles. You want to see a sign? It's going to come through my death and resurrection. So they want to see a sign on their own terms. Jesus says, you will see a sign, but it's not going to be according to your terms. It's going to be according to my father's terms. But then he's going to go on and talk about what they don't see. They need to be seeing something, but they don't see it. He'll come back to Jonah and Nineveh in a moment here, but now he's going to break off and talk about someone else in the Old Testament, namely the queen of the south, or as you read it in 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba. This woman, Jesus says, will have something to say at the final judgment, which is an interesting thing to consider, that at the final judgment, there, this woman is going to stand up and have a word with a group of people, namely this generation that rejected Jesus even as he was standing among them. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation, and he and she will condemn them. She will have strong words of condemnation for this group of people. Why? 
because she came from a long ways off, all the way from the south, possibly Yemen, Ethiopia, all the way south, from the south to Israel because she had heard about this great wise king Solomon and all that was happening in Israel. And when she saw it, as will she, she believed in the God of Israel and believed in this great man Solomon. You have something greater than Solomon here and you are ignoring him and requesting signs out of unbelief and refusing to repent and believe. So there's coming a day in the final judgment where she will stand up and call out the folly of this generation. And I don't, it's, I, it, it's hard to imagine how this will all work out at the final judgment. I, I, I don't think Jesus is using merely uh, illustrative language here or provocative language here. I trust that this is something that will actually happen. This woman from East Africa came to believe in the one true God through the glory and wisdom of Solomon. Listen to this account from 1 Kings 10, 1 through 9. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels, and spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions, and there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house he had built and the food that he had on his table and the seating of the officials and the attendance of his servants and their clothing and the cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was breathless. This was breathtaking to behold, to see this situation, to see this wise man who can answer all my questions in ways no one else has been able to. And not only that, but to see the material abundance and prosperity in this nation, a nation well run, a nation happy, a nation prosperous. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, half was not told me. She is stunned at what she sees. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king and you may, that you may execute justice and righteousness. In response to Solomon's wisdom and glory, she came to believe in the one true God. Just what, again, how did she respond? Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever that he made you king that he may execute justice and righteousness. She's a believer. She believes in God. Her testing with questions led to her faith. She has something to say to this generation who is standing before the one who is greater than Solomon, yet refuses to believe. This Gentile queen was bowing in awe before Yahweh and his king. These people whom Jesus is speaking have something greater than Solomon in their midst, yet they refuse to believe in him. They have greater glory in Jesus. They have greater wisdom in Jesus. They have a greater message in Jesus. You could even say they have greater prosperity in Jesus because he owns the whole universe. He's a greater person, but they can't see it. And so this Queen of Sheba is going to have a word with them, a word of condemnation, a word of judgment at the final judgment. So they don't see that. They don't see the, the, that one greater than Solomon is here. But also, they don't see this, something else that they don't see, one greater than Jonah. This is verse 32 now. The people of Nineveh will have something to say to this generation. I guess we'll just line it up. First it'll be the Queen of Sheba, and then when she's done, it'll, the, the, the people of Nineveh will come up and have a word to this generation. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. He came in, said, in this amount of days, the city will be overthrown, and boom, it was a repentance party. 
In both cases, the Queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh, you have Gentiles rebuking Jews for their failure to believe in Yahweh and their Messiah. This would have been a complete reversal of what they expected. (laughs) I mean, it would have been outrageous in their ears. Just the outrage that must have uh, come up in their, uh, dwell up in their own hearts because of what Jesus is saying. They would have said, you're telling me that the Gentiles are going to condemn us, God's chosen people, at the final judgment? Unheard of, absurd, unthinkable. Who do you think you are? But this is precisely what Jesus is saying. Because this present generation had failed to see the glory of the one who is greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon. You might remember last week, Cliff told us and explained to us from Deuteronomy 18 that the Jews were expecting the one true prophet, the prophet, the the capital T, capital P, the prophet, right, from Deuteronomy 18. Jonah couldn't be that prophet because he was a sinner, If we turn back to Jonah, you'll see just right after Nineveh repents. You know what Jonah's attitude was? He was so mad, he wanted to die because God had mercy on a pagan nation. That's a terrible attitude. That is a horrible attitude. Jonah can't be the prophet because he's a sinner. He starts complaining about God's mercy. So despite his amazing experience of going from death to life and having his preaching transform an entire metropolis, Jonah wasn't the prophet. He was a sinful man, right? Israel was also waiting for her true king. But it couldn't be Solomon because Solomon is also a sinner. It just so happens that just a chapter later, after the queen of the south visits, you find out that Solomon turns from the Lord to idols and to multiple wives and concubines. We need the greater Solomon. We need the greater Jonah. And here he is, and this generation is testing him with unbelieving questions, asking him for some sensational sign from heaven when the entire Old Testament and Jesus' own ministries testify that he is without doubt the prophet, the Messiah, the king. Look at his wisdom, look at his glory, look at his perfection and sinlessness, look at his character, and in a little while, look at his death and resurrection. What's the problem with this generation? There's there's a serious problem, and this is, now we're turning to verses 33 and following, and Jesus is going to explain why they don't see what they should see, right? Are you starting to see now the theme for these two uh, sections is sight, what you see or what you don't see. And it's interesting because you turn to verse 33, and I bring this up a lot. Sometimes it just seems like Jesus is completely changing the subject, right? He's not here. Look at verse 33. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar and under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. You might be thinking, well, um, hmm. how does that connect with what you just talked about, Jesus? Well, it certainly connects, and let me hopefully show you how it connects. You might notice that in verse 33, when he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, you might be thinking, hey, I've heard that before. And you have heard that before. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all uh, all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus in Matthew 5 is using this phrase as an illustration of what his disciples are to do. Let your light shine. Let the light of the gospel that is in you now shine for all to see. No one lights a lamp. This is just axiomatic. No one lights a lamp and then covers it up. You shouldn't do that with the light of the gospel that's in you now. You let that light shine. Don't hide it. That's the meaning of that phrase, that axiomatic phrase in Matthew 5. Jesus is using it differently in Luke 11. He's using it now to illustrate something, a different principle. So we have to be discerning at this point. In Luke 11, 33 through 36, he's not talking about a disciple's light shining into the world. He's referring to the light of the eye shining into one's person. What is he talking about? Let's follow his argument here. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. 
When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. We're to conclude here that Jesus isn't talking about the physical eye, but about our spiritual eyesight. He's not talking merely about our bodies, but about our whole person. The eye here is the spiritual eye, and it is the gateway into the soul, into the whole person, you might see, you might say. The spiritual eye, the way that we interpret and perceive reality, is the lamp to our entire person, the gateway, the, the lamp into our entire person. When your spiritual eye is healthy, when it's working properly, when it's seeing things the way it should be, they should be seen, your whole person will be full of light. Healthy spiritual eyesight enables us to behold and comprehend reality, which means it enables us to see the glory and wisdom of Jesus because that's what's really real. It's not just what's in front of you in terms of physical objects. Objects. Reality is the glory of Jesus Christ, your creator. That's reality. And healthy eyesight perceives that. Healthy spiritual eyesight perceives that. Healthy physical eyesight helps you rightly perceive physical objects in the world, right? Healthy spiritual eyesight helps you rightly perceive spiritual realities that stand behind those physical, physical objects. Namely, God, the truth of his word, the glory of Jesus Christ, salvation, his kingdom, and so on. And when you can see the glory of Jesus Christ, your whole personhood will be filled out, complete with spiritual light. When we are able to see the way things really are, we will have proper affections. We will think rightly about the world and about our life and about God. We will have right judgment and right discernment. We'll be able to understand what is good and what is evil. When the spiritual eye is unhealthy, we are unable to rightly perceive reality. We can't recognize truth and error, right or wrong, and we can't see the glory of Jesus. That's precisely what is happening to this people right now in Jesus' ministry. The eye is evil, and that's why we know we can connect these two things, because that word used for bad here in verse 34 is the same word that Jesus has used to characterize this generation. They're evil. Same word. When it is, uh, you could say, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is evil, your body is full of darkness. The people whom Jesus is speaking are clearly indicating by the way they're responding to Jesus that their spiritual eyesight is exceedingly sick. It is diseased. It is unwell. It's clear that their spiritual eyesight is badly infected because they cannot recognize, they cannot see, they cannot understand that before them stands the greater Solomon, the greater Jonah, even though it's, he's right in front of them. That's why he warns them in the next sentence, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. The light in you be darkness. See, the people, they, they, they thought they had light inside of them. That's why they're testing Jesus about his messiahship. They thought their minds were clear. They thought they were being reasonable. They believed that they are wise enough to determine what kind of sign would prove that this Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Messiah. The problem is that the light that they have in them is the light of their own minds. Rather than leaning on the word of God, which is another important theme of this passage beginning in verse 14 as we saw in 28, rather than leaning on the word of God and the spirit of God to enable them to rightly perceive who this Messiah is, they are leaning on their own standards and their own ideas. This is, this is folly. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks according to wisdom will be delivered. Listen to Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? That was this generation. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. When you are wise in your own eyes and you think you're the one who determines what the Messiah looks like, you're the one who determines what God is like, you're the one who determines what an incarnate God would look like, there's no hope for you. You'll reject Jesus. So long as you rely upon your own wisdom to discern the way things really are in the world, you will be locked into spiritual foolishness and folly. There's more hope for a fool than for someone like that. But when someone walks in the wisdom of God's word, they are able to see and behold the Lord Jesus and come to him for salvation. That's what Paul told Timothy the scriptures are able to do, to give you wisdom that leads to faith in Christ Jesus. 
Notice where Jesus takes their concern for a sign. Where does he take them? He takes them to Bible stories about Jonah and about Solomon. The people wanted a sign that they determined from their own minds would be fitting for the Messiah. Jesus takes them to the word of God. Why does he do that? Because the whole of scripture from beginning to end is designed to take you to Jesus Christ so that you would be justified by faith. That is the the purpose of scripture, the Old Testament scripture. Jesus isn't only the greater Jonah or the greater Solomon. He's the greater Adam. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater David. He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greater priest. He's the greater temple. He's the greater offspring. But you can only see that if you shed your reliance upon your own wisdom and yield your heart and mind to the word of God, to the light of Scripture. Jesus is so wise when he says, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. People believe that they're full of light, don't they? It's not anybody, people aren't walking around saying, all I have is darkness. I mean, people are living their lives and making their way through their daily routines by the light and guidance of their own mind, unaided by God's revelation in the Bible. This is just the way people operate by and large, isn't it? Some call it an inner light. Some call it their reason. Some even are audacious enough to call it the Holy Spirit. But they are assessing religious ideas and spirituality in Jesus and God according to their own inner wisdom without reliance upon God's written word, which is the only source that enables us to rightly interpret reality. When people are confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ, they may require a miraculous sign or a providential movement in their favor, just like the people of this generation. I don't think anything has changed. Human nature hasn't changed. Unbelief hasn't changed. They put God to the test according to their own ideas of who God is like and how they should think he should respond to them. This is the nature of unbelief, isn't it? When you're talking to people and you're sharing with them the gospel and you're saying this is who God is and this is what God has done. And in essence, they respond to you like, I don't like that or that's not how I would do it. And all they're doing is showing it that they're relying upon their own mind, their own wisdom, to tell you what they think God should do and what he should be like. They might even want a, some sort of miracle. Like, if God would do a miracle, I'll believe it. I'll believe in him. Cliff pointed out, and just this is great last week, he pointed this out. Beholding a miracle won't save you, actually, as it turns out, biblically speaking. I just wrote that down in my journal. I thought that was just such a pithy little saving, uh, little saying. And it likely won't change your mind or heart. What a person needs is radical eye surgery where the master surgeon, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, takes the word of God and removes the blindness of unbelief and changes your heart to now rely upon the wisdom of his word and not our own wisdom. This is conversion. This is why Jesus likens conversion to becoming like a little child. Little children lean on the wisdom of their parents because they have recourse to no other wisdom. So what we're, this is what conversion is. There's this famous debate. Some of you may know about it. Famous debate about the, the, uh, the existence of God between two people. One was a Christian apologist named Greg Bonson and the other one was a physiologist named Gordon Stein. And uh, they have both since died. Um, but it's a remarkable uh, debate, and actually, believers and unbelievers alike agree that Bonson got the best of Stein in the debate. It was, it's just a remarkable exercise in Christian apologetics and in, in graciousness and in, in, a, in, a, in a Christ-centered, biblically-grounded apologetic. Well, in the latter part of the debate, Stein is asked, what evidence would you say is an adequate uh, evidence for the existence of God? And he said... Well, if this podium all of a sudden levitated five feet up in the air and I could assess and I could determine that this was not conducted by some sort of machinery or wiring or some, something like that, then I would believe that is adequate evidence for the existence of God. And Bonson responds, so, then, so he says his piece, and then Bonson responds, he gets, I think, a little rebuttal, a one-minute rebuttal after that, and he says, in essence, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. 
in a matter of weeks, days, maybe even hours, you would come up with a naturalistic explanation for what just happened. And he wasn't being mean. Bonson was not being mean. He's just being biblical. Some sort of miracle like that is not going to persuade someone who is already convinced that the scriptures are not true. Jesus even said this. You might remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus is saying, just let uh, someone come up and, and uh, uh, preach to them, to my brothers, so that they might believe. And Jesus says, they have the law and the prophets. They, if they don't believe those, it doesn't even matter if someone rises from the dead. You can behold that miracle and still not be, not believe. We can't even rightly assess redemptive events without God's interpretive word. Isn't that incredible? We can't rightly assess redemptive events without God's interpretive word explaining to you all that it means. This is how dependent we are upon a word from our creator. You can have a man rise up from the dead and you have not a clue what it means unless God tells you. You can't rightly interpret life and the world without a creator explaining it to you. So then the question for us is, can you see him? Can you see the Lord Jesus? Here's the test to know if the light in you is really light or if it is darkness. Can you see the glory of Jesus Christ? Can you see the greater Jonah? Can you see the greater Solomon? Is the word of God the place, the place where the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed from Old to New Testaments, precious to your soul? Is it your life? Want to do a diagnostic test? How do you know if your eyesight, your spiritual eyesight is healthy? You are able to see the glory of Jesus and the goodness and the sufficiency of his word. And how do you keep your eyesight healthy? By relying upon Christ and the wisdom of his word. This is where I want to end by now pressing these truths home to us today. Just an honest and earnest word to you. If you are here today without Jesus Christ, you are in a similar position to the people of this generation. No, you don't have Jesus standing before you, but you do have his very word being proclaimed to you. You are in a similar situation. You are hearing the words of Christ but you have not repented and trusting in Christ, trusted in Christ, and now you are currently standing unbelieving before your God and Creator. And you are unbelieving not because Jesus isn't real and not because the Bible isn't true. He is, and it, He is real, and the Bible is true. It's because you are assessing Jesus Christ according to your own reason and your own wisdom. You are testing God according to what you deem is best and what you think is fitting for God and for salvation and what that should look like. You are judging Christ by what you deem is appropriate for an incarnate God to become and walk among us and what that should look like. You may even say that you want some fantastic proof or miracle that Jesus is real, but let me just be clear. This methodology will never get you to Jesus. You are living in a creation that showcases at every moment God's glory in the mountains, in rivers, in the sun, and the moon, in the food you eat, particularly coffee, in the people who are made in God's image. You are hearing countless evidence from the scriptures about the person and truth of Jesus. He is the risen Lord of all. You don't need anything else to believe in him right now. You have it all. You have everything that you need. You have the glory of God's world that he's created, that you exist in. You have the word of Christ from the scripture being taught and proclaimed to you right now. There's nothing more that you need to believe in Jesus. The reason you're not believing is because you're assessing even the words that I'm preaching and teaching by the light of your own reason. You must yield your heart and mind to this word of God so that you might see Jesus and believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the Savior. He has come to this earth. He has lived a sinless life in the place of sinners. And then he has died on sinner's behalf, so that all of their punishment is 
paid for, it's completed in him so that there's nothing left to do but to turn from your sin and trust in the Savior, this all-sufficient Savior. But I also want to speak to the believers here today. These words, I think, are primarily targeted at the unconverted because of their, the reliance on their own wisdom. So I think that's the primary application here. Their reliance on their own, the light of their own minds. But there's a principle here that applies to us as believers. In order to keep our spiritual eyesight healthy, we must, by God's grace, keep our hearts humbly relying upon the word of God. There are countless, and I mean countless voices outside, and sadly I have to say this, not only outside the church, but inside the professing church that would love to nudge you away from this foundation. Just a constant barrage of attacks and temptations for you to push aside the word of God and to no longer rely on it as you do. And this, is, this strategy of Satan's has not changed. This is his number one strategy from the very beginning of time. You, just to, to walk back briefly to Genesis 3, because there's a connection here from this passage all the way back to Genesis 3, if you can believe it. God had provided his brand new couple with his word, right? He gave them the command. The command wasn't don't eat. The, the first part of the command was eat everything, actually. That was the first part of the command. Satan tries to make God look like a curmudgeon, saying, didn't he say something about not eating? No, 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 that's not what he said at all. He said, eat everything, except this one, okay? So God gives them a word to navigate reality. You can't navigate reality without a word from your creator. Here's a gracious word from your creator, Adam and Eve, to navigate reality. Satan's question, did God really say, was intended to knock Adam and Eve back on their heels so that they would stabilize themselves, not by the word of God, but with what? Their own reason. Listen to how this unfolds. His tactic worked. Eve responded by quoting God's word, but not entirely accurately. Did you know that? She adds a little bit to it. Then when the tempter directly contradicted God's word, Adam and, Steve, uh, Adam and Eve stood helpless, and didn't do anything about it. They didn't say one word about it. They had no recourse. Satan then promised them that their spiritual eyesight would improve if they took from the forbidden tree. Can you believe it? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the text in Genesis 3 tells us exactly how Eve was thinking right before she took the fruit. Here's how she reasoned. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She assessed the tree according to her own wisdom. She interpreted her environment without the aid of God's word. She interpreted the situation by the light of her own judgment instead of relying upon the word of God. As a result, all hell broke loose. That's no exaggeration. The text says, then the eyes of both of them were open. Their, their spiritual eyesight changed that day, but it did not improve. It became, from that point on, infected with sin. Their eyes were open to the horror of their own sin. And now, from this point on, every person who comes from Adam and Eve, which is all human beings, are now built in, have a built-in disease in their spiritual eyesight that disables us from seeing reality the way it really is. Now, as Christians, we've experienced the, the surgical removal of the blindness, of the disease. And we've been given hearts that are pliable and soft to the word of God. But the implicit warning in this passage in Luke today is that we would remain tethered to the word of God. That we not second guess it. That we would by grace, cultivate an impulse that pushes us to the word of God whenever we are confronted with personal, relational, social, cultural, or political problems and be wary of relying on our own wisdom to rightly interpret life. I don't know about you, but this, for me, is a daily battle. And I'm a pastor who spends a lot of time in scripture. It's a battle. The temptation is to go looking elsewhere for wisdom. 
And that's exactly what got Adam and Eve into trouble. And it's exactly what had now this group, this generation, tied into unbelief. An unbelief that they could not get themselves out of without divine intervention. But let's end on a good word, should we? Shall we? Here's the promise. When our spiritual eyesight is healthy, Jesus says that it will be, our, our person will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. That's why I take this to be a different meaning than what he says in Matthew. It says, and if then your body is full of light, having no dark part, it will then be wholly bright, telling us now what he meant by that previous illustration, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So now when the eyesight is clear, it's healthy, now you can see the way things really are and now your whole body, your whole personhood is filled up and filled out with the glory of God. The mind will be clear, the affections will be right, the conscience will be good, integrity will be the stable character of your life. And you will be able to see the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the blessing that comes with keeping our spiritual eyesight clear by reliance upon God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this gift of your word. A word that enables us to see the way things really are. A word that clears away confusion. A word that gives us insight into realities that go beyond just the physical. God, we thank you for this word. I pray that you would help us each to fight that battle that that rages every day, that the temptation to depart from your word, to seek wisdom for spiritual matters outside of your word, to think that there's even something better, God forbid, than your word. Help us to not try to navigate our lives or this world by the light of our own reason, by the light of our own minds, by the light of our own wisdom. Help us to see the deficiency of our wisdom that we might rely all the more on the Lord Jesus Christ and your word, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.